appreciate Keith's testimony and those of you who were able to attend last Sunday night, the ordination service of uh, Pastor Keith, and it was an exciting and confirming time. We bless God for his ministry in our midst. And let me say thank you to you for your prayers. It's good to be back. Um, the Lord is... The Lord is gracious and kind. I am very mindful of the fact that some who get COVID do not uh, come out of it on the other end. And uh, during my own convalescence, I was mindful of a couple of my close friends who didn't make it. And uh, just uh, looking to the Lord for his will to be accomplished. Um, my wife ended up getting COVID as well. Kim didn't. Uh, at least up to this point. So that is a, an answer to prayer, and Nancy's doing better. Many in our, our church have also gone through this, and it continues to be a virus that doesn't want to die. But remember that God is king, and he is going to get the victory in and through all of this. And we need to make sure that we don't let this derail us from following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in unseen ways, in our ancestry, in our own hearts, in providential dealings of circumstance and time and relationships, so that we might be confronted with the gospel message and hear the Spirit of God speak to us, saying, come, come and drink of the water of life freely. And then, Lord, by your mercy and your grace, to believe upon the Savior and to experience full forgiveness, Lord, indeed, this is heaven to the soul. We come now asking that the blessed Spirit of God would open our eyes as we open the Word so that we might understand the truths of Scripture and in understanding have our lives changed. Only you can do that, Lord. But we pray for that miracle this morning in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, I had the privilege of serving our own minor league baseball team, the Lansing Lugnuts, uh, as their chaplain. And it was an outreach ministry that I thoroughly enjoyed. Because our manager in the early history of the Lugnuts was a believer and became part of our church here, and we developed a good relationship, he invited me one year to go to spring training, and so I did. For someone who loves baseball, that is an earthly utopia, <laughs> to be in spring training where the weather is nice. But that wasn't all of it. Not only did I get to see the players who had come through Lansing and some who were on their way here and interact with other players at that time in the Kansas City Royals system, not only did I have that privilege, but they gave me free access to every major league baseball game, exhibition games, but every game that was played in Haines City. And during the time I was down there, as I recall, there were three games on different days. And so I was given the special access. You go to this place and you go in this dark hallway and no ticket, no tag, just walk in there like you know what you're doing. 
And then through that dark hallway, you'll come out into the sunlight uh, of a beautiful summer day or spring day and out to the uh, beautifully manicured ball field. So I did. The first day I went, this free access was amazing, but I was frightened. I was nervous. I thought someone was going to grab hold of me and say, what are you doing here? You don't deserve to be here. But no one did. As I was walking down the dark hallway, I saw a solitary figure coming my way, and I thought, oh, no, this is the guy who's going to jump me and uh, throw me out. But he didn't. When, I, when the light came on, or we walked under a light, and I saw who it was, he kindly smiled and said hello. And it was the uh, Hall of Famer, George Brett, who happens to be, if you know anything about baseball, the most famous Kansas City Royal ever. And then I walked onto the field, and it was amazing. The second day was totally different because I went with boldness and confidence. I belong here. I know the way. And I walked right in, and the same thing on the third day. Well, then, in 2001, we had, of course, the horrible terrorist attacks on 9-11 and other incidents that happened in our world so that access to sporting events and all kinds of major gatherings was restricted. Not only that, but I stopped as my role of chaplain for the minor league team, and suddenly there is access denied. I can't get into any of these games, not that I've tried. But when you have something like that and lose it, so wow, that's a big loss. Now you say, Pastor, really, this is getting a bit comical. You're talking about a baseball game. Yeah, but suppose you were trying not to get into a game, but trying to get in to see God. Suppose your attempts to draw near to the Holy One were denied. Now that would have sad and eternal consequences. And that's exactly what's happening in the first part of Hebrews Chapter 10. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And the scripture has been wonderfully read for us. And that portion of scripture is a bit of a review, but we do need to review before we move on into the middle part of this chapter. And I want you to note that Hebrews 10 verse 1 says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. The law and the sacraments are pointing to the Savior who would come. They were the shadow, he is the substance. But now notice in the middle of verse 1, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year. Don't you feel the burden and the weight of those words? It can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. What a sad scene. Let that sink into your soul. These people coming with a passionate desire to come into the presence of God and leave extremely disappointed because they can never hear the words, you're forgiven. They can never truly draw near. Something forbids them, there's an obstacle in their way. The very next verse, verse 2 says, 
if these sacrifices could truly forgive them, would they not have been stopped? But the very fact that those sacrifices come back year after year after year is a reminder that they are still guilty, it says in verse 2. And the weight and burden of their soul is still heavy upon them. And so even after their best efforts, the craving of their soul, the aim of their, of their energy ends in failure. And they hear access denied. You can't come in. So the residue of this ritual, the result on the soul, is a burden that no one can bear. Religion is a terrible thing when it keeps you away from God. And that's exactly what religion does, except Christianity. Every religion without Christ keeps you away from God, keeps you busy in ritual, but heavy with guilt. You've not done enough. You're not perfect. You haven't arrived. Keep coming. See you next year. See you next Sunday. And you would go away, access denied, I tried to draw near, but I couldn't make it. Now notice notice the transition in verse 5. This is beautiful. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, what is that? We call it Christmas. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus said in verse 7, here I am. It's written about me in the word, in the scriptures, in the scroll. I have come to do your will. So the birth of Christ is motivated by the will of God to accomplish an atonement for sinners that will bring them near to the presence of God and wipe away guilt forever. If you go down to verse 12, it says, when this high priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 11 says the priests are standing in the present tense, probably referring to the fact that at that moment they were still standing in the temple in Jerusalem offering the same sacrifices that couldn't take away sin. But when this priest offered one sacrifice for sin, instead of standing, he sat down. Because it is finished. And then verse 13 says, since that time, after he sat down, he waits. He's in waiting mode right now, waiting until the time when his enemies will be made his footstool. Now think of what we just read. In those few verses, verse 5, the amazing incarnation of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, the heavenly exaltation or session of Jesus Christ. And then the final vindication of Christ in verse 13. It's all there in glorious gospel. Christ has died for sinners and has rose to be at the right hand of the Father. And from thence, From that place, he will come to judge the living and the dead and vindicate his father 
and all kingdoms or the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What a glorious day that will be. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to excite his readers with a quotation from Jeremiah 31. This begins in Hebrews 10 and 15. And what is so significant is that he started out the center section, the main section and heart of, the, of his epistle, with a quotation from Jeremiah 31 way back in Hebrews 8. And now to end it, he comes back to this wonderful section of scripture. And I love the way it starts. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this, and then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, which is exactly what he did back in chapter 3. The Holy Spirit says, and then he quoted from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95, which simply highlights the fact that all Scripture is the voice of God and only the Scripture is the voice of God. Every time you pick up this book, you read and hear the voice of God. Oh, pray that the voice of God who wrote the book will speak to your heart through the book and cause you to see the glories of our Savior. So, Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with you in those days, he says. First of all, I will write them or put them in your hearts and write them on your minds. That's kind of a positive affirmation. But then the second statement is stated negatively, but it's actually positive when he says, and I will not remember your sins. I will write my law on your heart I will not, emphatically so, ever your, remember your sins. Your sins will not be recalled. They will not be renewed. They will not be brought back. I will never remember them again. That's the new covenant sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's time for us to pause in praise and give him thanks for saving our souls right? Pause my soul, adore and wonder. Ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace has put me in the number of the Savior's family. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks, eternal thanks to thee. From a reminder of the new covenant and its blessings, we now come verse 19 and asking this question so in light of all of this what do we actually possess the writer wants us to know what we possess in Christ because of his gracious new covenant so he mentions a couple things number one he says brothers and sisters therefore verse 19 since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Oh, what a great section of scripture. We have confidence now. Again, think of yourself going to like a presidential inauguration ball. 
And you go with confidence that you will get in, even though admittance is limited, but you have in your hand a written invitation, perhaps from the president. You don't know the president, but you know someone who knows someone who knows the president, and you got your name on the list. And you come before the guard at the door with great confidence because you have your name written on the invitation. You and I now come into the presence of God not to be rejected, but with boldness. I can get in because I know someone who knows him, because I know Jesus. Jesus is the one who opens the way for us and gives us confidence. How does he do it? Well, we get into the holy place by the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that we've been looking at. This is a new way as opposed to the old way. It's a living way as opposed to the defunct way of the old covenant. I'm amazed at how many times the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to remind us that God is alive and that our access to him is efficacious and living. For instance, we're told in chapter three of Hebrews, don't turn away from the living God. Or in chapter nine, turn from dead works to serve the living God. Or at the end of our chapter 10, we read it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a new way that Jesus has provided it's a living way, which makes me think of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way that brings life. He's the living way. And how does he do it? Well, he opened this way for us through the curtain. Again, we're thinking about the temple now. Uh, much of the language of the new covenant is couched in the language of the Old Testament temple to show how much better it is. So there was a curtain blocking the way. That's why you couldn't draw near. And only the high priest could go in once a year, only one day a year, with blood atonement for his own sin and then the sacrifice for the sins of everyone else. And there was a curtain that said, no, you can't come in. You're not welcome here. Access denied. But when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain in the temple? It was torn from top to bottom. That's significant, which means this is an act of God. So as the curtain of the temple was torn and access opened into the holy place, so the body of Christ, his flesh, was torn for us. He's the curtain and he opens a way for us to come in. So now we come in with boldness. And the first time you come to God in prayer, you might be shaking and say, I wonder if I'll get in. Is someone going to grab me by the skiff of the neck and throw me out? No, no. There's the welcoming arms of Jesus. Come in. I paid for your entrance. And not only do we have confidence to enter, but he says in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, again, in contrast to the old high priest, the earthly high priest, 
This one's great. Great in his personal worth because he's divine and great in his accomplishment because it was once forever. I hate doing the same thing twice when I should have accomplished the goal the first time. So you're trying to fix something and you don't read the directions and you get it all done and it's not done. And you have to do it again. And then sometimes there's a third and a fourth time. And sometimes you have to call the professional because you just can't get it right. I hate doing the same thing over and over and over and never achieving the goal. But Jesus dies. And it's done. It's done. There's nothing else for you to do. There's nothing you can do. He has done it all. You say, what do you call that? You call that grace and love and mercy and God. So since we have a great high priest like this and since we have confidence to enter in, how should we respond? That's the next question. How should we respond? And the answer is quite clear. With three major verbs, he tells us what kind of response we should have to this great truth. You see, when you grasp a truth, it should change your conduct. When you grasp a biblical concept, it should change the way you live. Every great man or woman of God who's accomplished anything for the Lord has come under the power of a great biblical truth. It's connected to the gospel of grace. They've seen it, and they're never the same. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because we have these things, we should never be the same. How should we respond? By the way, this sounds maybe a little technical, But there is a grammatical situation in the original language called a hortatory subjunctive. Now, when I took Greek, I didn't do very well in undergrad. I had to work really hard just to get by. Or actually, if I would have worked harder, I may have gotten by better. But that's a whole other story. But there's a couple things that I remember, and this is one of them, because it means exhortation. And sometimes it's a personal one, but when it's in the plural, as it is here, it's a collective invitation. Hortatory is to exhort. This whole letter is an exhortation. And the neat thing I loved about this is because every time you found it, this particular uh, structure in the word, it was always translated, let us. And I loved it when I finally understood something, let us. 16 times it happens in the book of Hebrews. Here's the truth presented, and here's the response. Let us collectively respond appropriately. But what is amazing is that this structure is found three times in the next three verses. So the first one is in verse 22. Here's the first one. How should we respond? Well, we are to draw near. Let us draw near. To the God we worship. Verse 22. Draw near to God with a sincere heart 
in full assurance of faith. How do we do that? Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. By the way, that's terminology taken directly from Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel is quoting Jeremiah 31. Oh, I love how the scripture goes together. It's a discussion of the new covenant where our hearts are sprinkled and our conscience is cleared. So we come with an honest heart, with confident faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the internal and external. Internally, our hearts are cleansed and externally, our bodies are washed. Clearly, the second reference is to baptism, the outward symbol of the inward reality. Let us draw near because we have come by faith and we have gone forward declaring our faith in baptism. You know, baptism will not save you best example is the thief on the cross. And what has happened to the Christian church because of that one obvious truth is that we often depress in our own hearts and minds the value of baptism. And we think we can take it or leave it. You can't. Well, the thief on the cross did. One exception, when you're on a cross, okay. But the rest of the scripture makes it clear. You believe and you're baptized. You believe and you're baptized. So much so that people think they go together, that they're salvific. Only the belief is. But baptism goes right with it. Why? Because you are declaring publicly what has happened inwardly. Your heart has been cleansed, and now the body is washed as you enter in. Don't hold back on your public baptism. If you've never been baptized, it is a way for God to seal in your heart his great work. And since it is a command, you get the blessing of obedience in no other way. Well, I'll just read the Bible more. Uh Uh-uh. I won't be baptized, but I'll give more on the offering. No. Why don't you just obey God and find out this is such a cool thing because it's part of drawing near and we draw near into the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ our hearts sprinkled our bodies washed we enter what the high priest could only do one day of year every person in the believing community can do every day of the year Draw near to God. What you couldn't do at the beginning of the chapter, because of the animal sacrifices, you draw near, but it never took your sin away. Now you draw near because your sins are gone. I think this is the best way to describe what we commonly call daily devotions or personal devotions. Draw near. Write that on your calendar. D-N. What does that mean? 
I need to draw near. I have the privilege of drawing near into that holy presence of God past the curtain because of Christ. Why would I give up such an opportunity? James chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Very next verse, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We're too cerebral sometimes in our Christianity. We're merely acknowledging what we believe, and that's a start, and that's important, but we've got to experience this. The heart has to be touched. And we have to enter into the presence of God. Read Revelation 4 and 5 and think about the sights and sounds and the smells of being in the throne room of God. Let your imagination go wild and realize it's just your imagination. But try to picture yourself there in the presence of the awesome God. By the way, in chapter four, it's God the Father. In chapter five, it's Christ the Son, both on the throne and everyone singing worthy. Worthy to the Father, worthy to the Lamb. You get to do that every day. Drawing near. But there's something else that we get to do and that we must do by way of response, and that is to hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Some of the old translations have the word hold fast. We sang a moment ago, he will hold me fast. And this verse is not talking about us holding on to him as much as it's talking about us holding on to our profession. What profession? The one we made at baptism when our bodies were washed. It's that profession where we declared our faith and trust in him. It's the confession of a good hope it refers to what these Jewish Christians had acknowledged when they were baptized to their own community and to the world. I'm a sinner. Jesus is a savior. I have trusted him, and by his grace, I plan to follow him. Down in the watery grave I go, and up I come in newness of life to follow him as my king and my redeemer and my savior and my Lord. And you may go under the water timid of soul, but oftentimes you'll come out of that water bold of spirit, for God invites you to come, and no one can stop his invitation. The Jewish Christians were thinking about turning back, but the writer's words to them is this, hold on to your profession of faith. Charles Spurgeon said this phrase, let us hold fast, should be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. Hold fast to your profession. Why? Because he is faithful. The one who called you is faithful. What justifies our efforts of faithfulness is the foundation of his faithfulness. 
It says this in chapter 11, verse 11, Abraham, when he was called upon to believe God that he would be a father, when humanly speaking, it was biologically impossible, yet he believed God because he considered the one who made the promise as being faithful. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, it simply says, he who calls you is faithful, and he will also do it. We need to be so convinced of God's faithfulness and the truth of Scripture that we cast our soul upon it. And we follow him. One final thing. The last exhortation. First was draw near, second hold fast, and the third is stir up. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may stir up or spur one another on toward love and good deeds. By the way, the old King James that I memorized, uh, I, I love that translation. It says, let us consider how to provoke one another. Now, if you end it right there, I'm really good at that. I believe I have some spiritual giftedness in the realm of provoking others. It's interesting that this Greek word is found only twice in the whole Bible, once in the negative in the book of Acts, chapter 15, where Paul and Barnabas are fighting about taking John Mark in the second missionary journey. And the word is translated, sharp contention. They were fighting with one another, provoking each other, and now it's used in the positive sense. Let's learn how to stimulate one another. To what? Not anger or frustration, but to love and to good works. By the way, did you notice the three great Christian virtues in these three successive verses? Faith, verse 22, hope, verse 23, and love, verse 24. That's our response. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now abides faith, hope, and love. Here they are. This is our response. And how are we going to stir up one another to love and good deeds? Verse 25, don't forsake the assembly. Don't avoid gathering with other believers. Now, this is a word for our day, if ever there was such. COVID has caused us to forsake the assembly. And I know that sometimes that has to be done for health reasons. Has to be. But coming out of COVID, there is a new attitude among the church that, you know what, I can continue to worship from a distance with this TV thing. And I'm, I'm all for it. The live stream is great, but it is not a substitute. You cannot fulfill verse 25 to provoke others around you when you're not around them. You have to gather. You have to. It's God's word. And we are missing a great spiritual grace and mercy by not coming together. COVID has shown us how much we need it and how deeply we long for it. So gather together, and especially as you see the day approaching. What day is that? Well, it could have been the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to happen very, very soon. But I think more likely it's looking 
beyond to the final eschaton, the final day of Christ's appearing, the final time of vindication when he makes his enemies a footstool, the final day of judgment described in verse 29, it's appointed a man wants to die. It's that final time when Christ comes to redeem his own. As you see that day approaching, make sure you draw near, you hold fast, and you stir up others to love and good deeds for the glory of God. Let me simply say this. When you grasp the concept, you change your conduct. Or to put it a different way, when the head comprehends the truth of Scripture, the heart must respond. So let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you will help us indeed to see what we have in Christ. That we have boldness to enter the holy place by the sacrifice of Christ himself. The body that was torn, the curtain that was rent. The open access, the free access to come into your presence boldly. Because we have that, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us stir up. With the glory of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.